wonder if you can remember the last time you made a significant decision, a significant judgment about another person. Should I talk to them or ignore them? Do they have something I need? Should I avoid them or embrace them? Can I learn from them or must they learn from me? Decisions like those fill our days, don't they? With family and friends, with colleagues, passers-by, and fleeting acquaintances. They might not feel very significant at the moment, but they determine the shape of our days and the overall pattern of our lives, those significant decisions we make about other people. And so we need to ask ourselves this question. How do we make a significant decision about the most significant person of all time. Take a look at verse 24. Jesus said, stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. At times, Jesus' conversation with the Jewish crowds and the Jewish leaders through chapters seven and eight of John's gospel seems a little bit hard to follow. But they all center in on this vital question, how can anyone make a correct judgment about Jesus. And today we're going to hear the opening exchange between Jesus and these crowds. But first we need to observe him make a significant decision of his own. And that takes us to the first of two lessons we're going to learn. Jesus' agenda is determined by God, not the world. Jesus' agenda is determined by God, not the world. Verse 1. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. Jesus wants to avoid the plot on his life that's been brewing since chapter 5. But his brothers have a different agenda. Verse 2, when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. Jesus' brothers rather fancy themselves as Jesus' agent, his marketing agency. And they're thinking, Jesus, at the beginning of chapter 6, you had a crowd of about 5,000 people, minimum. At the end of chapter 6, there's only about 12 people. Your popularity has taken a nosedive. It's time to get out of Galilee, these kind of backwater and head to the capital city. But Jesus' brothers have got Jesus all wrong. Verse 5. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Well, in a sense, they did. In a sense, they did believe in their brother. They believed that Jesus could go far in life. But their belief, their assessment of Jesus was determined by the world's agenda, not God's. Verse 6. Therefore, Jesus told them, my time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go to the festival. I'm not going up to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. Now, if you remember, the word world in John's gospel is a symbol, a code of humanity in evil rebellion against God. And Jesus is saying to his brothers, you are part of that world. And so how you spend your time is totally and utterly insignificant. It makes no difference whether you go to Jerusalem now, later, or never. 
But how Jesus spends his time really does matter. Verse 6, my time is not yet here. Verse 8, my time is not yet fully come. In other words, Jesus is saying, God determines my itinerary, not the world. Jesus does what his father wants when his father wants him to do it. And no one has any influence on his life whatsoever. Verse 9. After he had said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for the festival, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. Now, Jesus isn't doing one thing and saying another. He stays in Galilee. That's what he said he was going to do until his brothers are out of the way. And once they're gone, he's free to follow God's agenda, not theirs. And so he goes secretly, not publicly, like they wanted him to do. Now, why does all this matter? Well, it matters because all life in this world will ultimately be judged by one essential question. Will human beings let God be God or not? If we let God be God, then God's priorities, God's agenda, will be our priority, our agenda. He will be supreme in every area of our life. But if we won't, then it makes total sense to live like Jesus' brothers, to push ourselves to the top, to get what we want out of life, to make sure we're supreme, because God most certainly is not. Jesus wants us to know that by nature we live in evil rebellion against our creator and ruler. That's our nature. Or we choose to gladly allow him, allow God, to govern and rule our lives. And there's no doubt whatsoever about the type of life that Jesus lived. It was a God-determined, not a world-determined life. So this morning, if we want to make a clear decision about Jesus, the first thing we need to learn is that Jesus followed God's agenda, not the world's. And yet, even once we've learned that lesson, making a decision about Jesus doesn't come easily to anyone. So just look on to verse 12. Some said, he's a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. Or verse 15, they said, how did this man get such learning without having been taught? They're confused. How are they supposed to make a decision about Jesus? Well, Jesus' answer to their confusion brings us to our second lesson. Jesus' teaching is provably true, not false. Jesus' teaching is provably true, not false. Verse 16, Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. So Jesus didn't uh, do a YouGov poll and come up with all the policies that he thought the public would support. He didn't speak to all his friends and collect all their ideas into 10 handy hints for life. Jesus said that the things he taught came directly from heaven, from God. Now, as the crowds are beginning to realize that is either incredibly arrogant, dangerously unhinged, or extraordinarily true. So how could they, how can we decide between those three options? Well, in the next few verses, I think Jesus provides two pieces of evidence to prove that his teaching is true, not false. So if you're taking notes, this is the first sub-point of uh, point two. 
First of all, it is provably true by our own personal experience. It's provably true by our own personal experience. Verse 17. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. So Jesus' teaching isn't a body of truth that we either agree with or disagree with in our heads. It's a way of life we either follow or ignore. It's not contained in one reference book we might pull off the shelf every now and then. It is a lifestyle that is meant to shape the way we live every moment of every day. So a follower of Jesus doesn't simply choose to believe what Jesus said. They also choose to do what Jesus calls them to do. That is what Jesus means by doing the will of God. Not simply keeping a set of religious rules, but living a life shaped by a relationship with God. In other words, we must experience the Christian life at the same time as believing Christian truth. We must do in order to know. We must make decisions about Jesus from the inside, not the outside. Now, I'm aware that this might sound like a a circular argument, but just think about it. It is actually the way we live most of our life. We might like to think of ourselves as unbiased decision makers who sit on the outside and and make decisions about life before before we do anything. But actually, we hardly ever make decisions until we've experienced something of the consequences of that decision. So, for example, I think about marriage. A man and a woman do acts of love during their friendship and engagement, and then over time they know and love, they, they know that love more as they continue to do acts of love in their marriage. Or think about friendship. We take steps into one another's life if we really want to know one another better. Or think about workplace. The workplace, we must do the will of our employer if we want to discover the benefits of their employment. In all areas of life, we can't be forever on the outside if we want to one day be on the inside. We must make a a step of faith, a commitment in if we want to enjoy the truth of that person or of that opportunity. It's the same with following Jesus. We prove that his teaching is true by stepping in by our own experience. Let me just say this was the case for me personally, I think. Before I became a Christian, there was so much about Jesus that I just didn't understand. So much that didn't make sense. When I became a Christian, there was still a lot that didn't make sense. And there's still a lot that doesn't make sense today. But life now fits together in a way that it definitely didn't before I became a Christian nearly 20 years ago, things make sense in a way they never did and never could have done from the outside. So here's a challenge for us today. Uh, Perhaps especially if you wouldn't yet call yourself a Christian, a follower of Jesus yet. Will we choose to do the will of God? Perhaps you're, you're not convinced about Jesus. Maybe you're still puzzled about Jesus. You'd like to make a decision, but you're not sure how to make a decision. Well, if that is you, I wonder if Jesus would say something to you a bit like this. 
Are you prepared to give it a go? Will you give me a trial run? Will you take a step of faith and begin to explore life, not a life of religious rules, but a life lived in relationship with me on the inside? Because if we take that step of faith, we might just be surprised about what happens next. Because Jesus' teaching is provably true, first by our own experience. But this isn't the only proof that Jesus gives us to make a decision about him. So secondly, Jesus' teaching is provably true, not false, by Jesus' uniquely God-pleasing life. By Jesus' uniquely God-pleasing life. This is verses 18 to 23. Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. In some ways, Jesus is saying what he already said to his brothers. He's saying, I'm not here to enhance my own reputation, but God's. I'm a man with pure motives, so you can trust me entirely. And then what he does is he sets himself up as totally different in this respect from the crowds around him. Verse 19, has not Moses given you the law, yet not one of you keeps the law? Why are you trying to kill me? You are demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Who is trying to kill you? Well, Jesus starts talking about Moses because Moses wrote down the law, the law which revealed God's will. And the crowds there, they assume that they keep the law. But their attitude towards Jesus shows exactly the opposite. They, they want to kill him. They're lawbreakers, not law keepers. But Jesus says, no, I'm a law keeper. I, I live there uniquely. I am living a uniquely God-pleasing life. Verse 21. Jesus said to them, I did one miracle and you are all amazed. Yet because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually it didn't come from Moses, but from the patriarchs, you circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. Now if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath, so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Let me try and explain what Jesus means here. He says, you, are am you were amazed when I healed a man who had been an invalid for 38 years. That's the man in chapter 5. But your amazement came more from me telling him to carry his mat on the Sabbath day than actually healing him. And you thought to yourselves, this man doesn't care about keeping God's law. Jesus is saying, I do care about keeping God's law. In fact, I care so much that I came to fulfill God's law. That is why he talks about circumcision. Now, circumcision um, symbolically cut away uncleanness. And it marked out the people as belonging to God. It symbolically perfected the body. And so the Jews said, oh, you're allowed to do it on the Sabbath day. The day that symbolized a perfecting, the a perfecting of the relationship between God and humanity. A rest that we were created for. So when Jesus healed this man, his whole body on, on one particular Sabbath day, he wasn't a lawbreaker, he was a law fulfiller. 
He was a flesh and blood demonstration of a uniquely God-pleasing life. And that is why he issues the crowd with this challenge. Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. The Jews were amazed at Jesus' teaching, but they had no idea where it came from. Was he a good man, a bad man, a man who spoke the truth? And sometimes we are paralyzed by decisions, option A or B, left or right. We feel like we don't have enough information to decide. But Jesus gives us two brilliantly complementary pieces of, of evidence so we can make a decision about him. First of all, we look at ourselves. Secondly, we look at him. We look at ourselves. His teaching is provably true by his own experience. By our own experience, sorry. The Christian life is a life to be lived, not just a body of truth that we believe and sign up to. It's not easy, but if we try to, dis if we try to do it, we will discover that it works. So we look at ourselves. And secondly, we look at him. Because we look at the one who, who lived that uniquely God-pleasing life, a life that's recorded here for us in the Bible. Not just the gospel accounts like the gospel of John, but the whole scriptures from beginning to end that, that point to him, that match up, that fit together. No one has ever lived a uniquely God-pleasing life like Jesus has. So when did you last make a significant decision about another person? We do it all the time. And those decisions shape our days and the long-term pattern of our lives. And it's the same with the decision that we need to make about Jesus. It's not just a once-in-a-lifetime decision to become a Christian or not to become a Christian. It's all those seemingly smaller decisions as well. The choices we make moment by moment, whether or not we want to do God's will or whether we want to do our own will. So as we prepare for Christmas, let's be praying for God's help to live lives full of correct judgments about Jesus. And let's pray for our friends and neighbours as well that in this Christmas season they wouldn't be attracted so much by the baby in the manger that you can just ignore a few days later, but by the man who who always pursued God's agenda, not the world's. And let's be praying that, that friends and neighbors and people in our community would, would want to investigate his teaching and discover that it is provably true, not false, by their own experience and by his uniquely God-pleasing life. Show have a moment of quiet and then I'll pray. Stop judging by mere appearances but instead judge correctly. But Lord God, please help us uh, to look at Jesus correctly. Whether we've been following him for years and years, or whether we're only just beginning to investigate him and we're uncertain about who he really is. Help us to, to find out about him in the Bible and also to do your will and to discover that his teaching is true by the experience of our own lives as well. For we ask these things in his name.